You ever have a sense when you're reading the Bible that the thing that you're reading you've read before? Turn over to Psalm 14. If you're wondering why I'm having you turn to Psalm 14 when we're supposed to be doing Psalm 53, we'll see in just a moment. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of iniquity not of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord there they are in great dread for God is with the righteous generation you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted but the Lord is his refuge oh that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people Jacob will rejoice Israel will be glad now let's turn over to Psalm 53 The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge, who eat up my people as though they ate bread? and have not called upon God, there they were in great fear where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God restores his captive people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Two similarities. The main differences come in verse 5, verses verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 14. Um, the first part, I think, is pretty straightforward. The fool says there is no God. Romans 1 would lead us to believe that this is not atheism, but rather agnosticism. Not that I don't think there is a God, but I choose not to pay attention to him, right? Because Romans 1 says everybody knows there's a God. We pretend like there isn't. We um, try to suppress the voice of conscience and the testimony of creation in our own minds so that we don't have to pay attention to God, but we know that there's a God. So when the fool says, no God, he's essentially saying, I'm going to go my own way, and I'm not going to pay attention to God's way. Evidence of his having gone his own way is at the end of verse 1. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable injustice or abominable deeds. Psalm 14, there is no one who does good. This throws a wrench into any sort of human philosophy that says each person has a divine spark, each person has limitless potential, each person is basically a nice person. We meet people, and there is a sense in which most people are not nearly as corrupt as they could be, right? Not every person you meet is a murderer and a thief and someone who takes advantage of other people and someone whose life is consumed by lust and all those sorts of things. 
at least to the extent that there are far worse examples that come to mind. That being said, everyone apart from knowing God is corrupt. God has said, here's the right way. They've gone their own way. They, as a result, do things that God says are despicable or detestable, and they also perpetrate injustice toward other people. Um, and this is the end result of what we would expect. If you reject God's authority and you set yourself up as the authority, then really the only rule for your life is what pleases me, what helps me, what I want. And invariably that's going to come into conflict with what other people are pleased by and want and what helps them, what's to their advantage. And so we have a whole bunch of people living selfishly, committing various kinds of sin, trying to gain an advantage over the other person because they have set themselves up as their own authorities. And when it says God looks down to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God, I think this echoes some of the things we've seen in the book of Genesis. Not that God had to just sort of, you know, look down, hey, what are you doing? God knows that, right? But rather, it's saying God is surveying and saying, is there anyone here or there, over there, over there, anybody who on his own seeks after God? No. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a song in the hymn book that we haven't sang because I feel like it's in conflict with this passage. Turn to 298 if you would. If this is your favorite song, I apologize. But the chorus says, Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has prayed. Now there is a sense in which, you know, Ecclesiastes says God set eternity in our heart. We recognize that our suppression of truth about God and our going our own way doesn't always work out the best for us. But that's different from saying, you know, we really, really, really want to follow God, but we just kind of miss the mark a little bit. Whereas Romans says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Not like, you know... He did 26 miles out of the 26.2 of the marathon. He barely missed the mark. It's more like, you know, we're going to have a race across the Pacific Ocean, and I'm going to swim there, and you're going to swim there. We make it a little ways, right? But from God's perspective, it is as nothing. So, Romans 3 picks up this theme and basically just paints this really dire picture of humanity. The reason that this is important is because oftentimes perspectives on how salvation works have different starting points. So, for example, the person who says, the only thing keeping me from being saved is my will choosing to follow God, their starting point tends to be a passage like, anybody can come to me. But I think the starting point for us has to be, what's our condition apart from Christ? Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3. 
you don't want God. You've said, I'm not going to obey God. You do lots of sinful things. There are far greater obstacles to you turning to God than just like flipping a switch. I feel like it, I don't feel like it. And so any perspective that minimizes the horrible state in which we find ourselves, I think fails to do justice to these passages. I'm not saying that people who say, your free will is the thing that separates you between heaven and hell, don't love God, that they're not trying to follow him, those sorts of things. I'm just saying, these passages are weighty passages that say, if God doesn't do something, you hate him, you're going your own way, you do all sorts of wickedness, I mean, that's how we are apart from Christ. Every one of them is turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 14. There, uh, they have all turned aside. Everyone has turned aside. Basically the same idea. There is not one human being that can say, I've lived my life perfectly, and if God condemns me, I'm the one exception to God's justice that shouldn't fall under his condemnation. Because there's nobody like that. We all sin. Like we talked about with connection with our statement of faith. We sin by nature because we're descendants of Adam as a representative. We sin by choice because we want to do it. And we do it a lot. And then we are enslaved by it. So that's our state apart from God. Now the tone of Psalm 14 uh, versus Psalm 53 is a little bit different in the second half of the psalm. I think the tone of Psalm 14 is, here's wicked people, here's God's people, God is their refuge. Because that's basically what it says in verse 5 and 6. God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. There's more of an optimistic tone. There's more of a focus on God's people at the end of Psalm 14. We come to Psalm 53, and the focus is more on God's condemnation of the wicked. Because look at verse 5. There were, they were in great fear where no fear had been, for God scattered the bones of him who had camped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. So there's not this language of God is his refuge, God is with the righteous. Rather, the focus is on God's destruction of his enemies. Why the difference in emphasis? Um, it's interesting that both are, in some measure, attributed to David by the titles, which we talked about before, are not inspired, but are, I believe, historically accurate. But we also have um, this reference here to... Um, kind of a, a, a sadder tone if the word is understood properly. Mahalath, there's some of the words that pop up in the inscriptions and at different points in the Psalms that seem to be some sort of musical notes or descriptions of tone or instructions for instruments. But we don't necessarily know what all of those are. This one, some would understand to be more of a somber or a sad tone, which fits very well with the description of this. The question is, if David wrote the first one, look at verse 6. When the Lord restores his captive people. Was he speaking prophetically? Because the people were not technically captive in the sense of being under the oppression of Babylon or under the oppression of the Assyrians like they would later on be. 
So some people have said, well, that means both of them must have been written after those historical events. That denies the possibility of prophecy, because it, at least in one instance, Acts says David spoke prophetically in the Psalms when he anticipated things about Christ, right? So there is a possibility that God gave David a glimpse of the captivity of his people Israel, or that instead of translating it as captivity, there are some who would argue that it should be translated more um, along the sense of Romans 8. Flip over there with me if you would. Romans 8, verse 18 through 25. Pick up in verse 19. There is the anxious longing of the creation which waits eagerly for the revealing of sons, the sons of God. Verse 22. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. If those who want to translate the last phrases of verse 7 and of verse 6 understand it correctly, and it's less about captivity and more about restoration of people with regard to they were in a state of difficulty, now they've been delivered from it, then it's not bound to a time period after the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions. Regardless of the specific thing that David intended by it, clearly if David wrote it, it was historically long before those took place. The second one might have been closer to or perhaps after that time of captivity. But I think probably it's not after because there's still this expectation that God will in the future restore his people. Again, whether that's prophetically looking to the end times or whether it's anticipating from a state of oppression that God will deliver his people. I think both Psalms are looking forward to what God will do. Psalm 53 is in a little bit of a different place because I think more time has elapsed from when David wrote it originally to when someone came along and made these slight changes and, and added it alongside David's Psalm to the book of the Psalms from the perspective that there are more examples in Israel's history in which there are those who came to attack Israel and God defeated them. That's, I think, what is meant by the phrase, they were in great fear where no fear had been. Proud conqueror comes in boldly, ready to wipe out the people of Israel. God stops them. Verse 5, the second part of it, God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. We don't know for sure that this is what was in mind, but one of the first times that Assyria threatened Israel, what happened? Huge army comes against Israel. Huge army is wiped out. Not by the Israelites, but by God. God scatters their bones. They didn't make it home. They weren't buried in their graves with their families. They were crushed. They were destroyed. There are other examples that parallel that one, although that one's probably the best known and the most dramatic. God will protect his people against those who are fools, against those who have said, we don't have to pay any attention to God's authority. We can do our own thing and there will be no consequences. God says, no, 
when your arrogance and your pride and your foolishness mean that it comes to a direct threat to my people, I can and I will sooner or later call you to account for your pride and cast you down. And that's, I think, what verse 5 is saying. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Which is ironic because the fool says, there's no God for me. He rejects God. Why does the fool die? Because God rejects him. And so, this ties in with themes from the New Testament as well. We look at the Gospel, and we tend to want to present it as one of two equally acceptable options. Believe the Gospel, or don't believe it. And this creeps its way into the way that we present the Gospel. And I find myself doing this if I don't watch it. Hey, I'd love for you to come to our church, but if you don't want to go to church, that's okay. Hey, you should believe in Jesus, but if you don't want to believe in him right now, you know, I don't, I don't want to offend you. But if we grasp the significance of this psalm, it says, the one who rejects God is rejected by God and faces destruction. And so when we present the gospel, whether or not the person accepts it is in God's sovereignty and, and according to what they decide to do with it, right? But we cannot present believing in Jesus, gathering with God's people, living for God as an equally good option to going my own way, not gathering with God's people, not doing what God wants me to do. Because they're not, they're not equally good options. There's one good option, and there's one option that leads to destruction, which is where I think this psalm has elements of a wisdom psalm, right? Because in the Old Testament, wisdom literature, two ways to live. God's way, my way. Blessing, destruction. Life, judgment. And this psalm highlights that contrast for us. This expectation that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion is again tied to all of the promises that God has made to his people. Starting with what he said to Adam and Eve, and then he went on to particularly Abraham, and then Abraham's family, and then the people of Israel. God is going to arise and deliver his people. And there have been points in history where that seems like it's not true. When the Assyrians and Babylonians invaded, when the Nazis tried to exterminate the Jews, when uh, more recently other nations have wanted to wipe Israel off the face of the map, all of these different things seem to be cases in which the sentiment of verse 6, the hope of verse 6, can't possibly happen. And yet, I think there is a confident tone as this psalm closes out that says, not if, but when. Why? Because that's what it says. Both in Psalm 14 and, and, and in Psalm 53. Psalm 14 ends, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. Psalm 53 ends, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad, which I think is even a little bit more confident of a statement. They will do this. Let them do this is a third person command, more or less, right? You ought to do this. And if God's people, Israel, rejoice when God delivers them, 
then we as God's people watching those of the Israelites that God chooses to bring to salvation ought to rejoice when God delivers them and we ourselves ought to rejoice when God delivers us. We could be like the fool. There are moments every day where we are confronted with that possibility. I know what I ought to do, what pleases God, and I'm not going to do it. I'm the authority. God can't tell me what to do. You say a Christian can't. Do you struggle with that sometimes? So, don't be like the fool, because his end is certain. Follow God, trusting in his deliverance, because he will cast down the fools, and the proper response to God's work in those ways is to praise God, just as Jacob and Israel were called to do. Let's pray. Lord, Two psalms, very similar, slightly different emphases, both point to you, both point to the foolishness of sin, both point to the hope of your deliverance. Lord, help these truths to sink into our hearts and help us not just to skip over it and say, well, I already read that, but to, to compare them, to think about them, to take them to heart once again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.